Call for Action presents Of Consuming Interest, a public service show that discusses scams, deceptive offers, and other consumer concerns. Here's the director of WJLA 7 Call for Action and your host, Shirley Rooker. Is there really a hope in the future that inflation will lessen? Will we ever get back to where we were before in terms of cost? Will inflation decrease? I don't know the answers to any of those things. As a matter of fact, I don't pretend to. But we have someone with us today who's going to talk about um, what are some of the factors that cause inflation and what might be some things that the government could do to help lessen the impact on us. So anyway, my guest is Ryan Young. He's a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And Ryan, welcome to Of Consuming Interest. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, this is going to be a very interesting discussion because this is certainly not a strong subject with me. I, I deal with a lot of consumer issues, but dealing with something like the consumer price index is not something I'm particularly familiar with. However, I see the results of what's going on in inflation today. I just got through passing a, a gas station that's close to my home, and a high test was $5.55 a gallon. Kind of took my breath away. So... You wrote an article that's saying that there may be some good news, and you were really looking very hard for good news, Ryan. I know that. <laughs> that's okay. You're forgiven because we all need a little bit of brightness. Um, but at any rate, you point out some of the things that, that are causing it. And what was interesting to me was the term that you used that is uh, something called energy supply shock. And you say that that's not really what's causing inflation. Tell, put, can you put this in perspective so that even I can understand it? Absolutely, and don't sell yourself short. But inflation has to do with the supply of money. So if you have a pile of money on one side and the pile of all the goods and stuff and services that people make on the other side, that's what sets the general price level. The supply of money has been growing a lot faster than the pile of real stuff. When those get out of whack, that's when you get inflation or deflation. When you have price changes due to a supply shock, like what's happening with the invasion of Ukraine right now, um, that's not inflation. It's still a price increase. People still feel it in their pocket, but because that only affects energy, it only affects that one good, and it's because of supply and demand, not the supply of money, it's not inflation. It's a separate issue. We should still do something about it, and I have some ideas about that, but it's a separate issue, and it's not inflation. Inflation is always monetary. So, and so really what we're saying, you're saying is that it's the Fed's policies that are contributing to inflation and we should go smack them on the hand? Um, For the most part, inflation is about 8% right now. And I would say that about seven of those percentage points are on the Fed. The other 1% is on Congress and on the administration for a lot of deficit spending, because that can increase the money supply a little bit. That can create inflation a little bit. But the bulk of this, yes, that's on the Fed. But the cost of the goods that we're purchasing, I mean, I think most of us typically think of that as inflation, for example, food and energy, which you say is not really inflation, but is the result of a supply chain and the shock to the system and the availability. Um, so in order to look at this reasonably, how would you tell a consumer to to look at it and get some hope out of it. Now, you say that there's some things that the Fed needs to do. What are those things that would make it, you believe, would make a difference and ease some of the strain on consumers? What the Fed needs to do is it essentially needs to play a matching game. It needs to match the money supply 
to the amount of goods and services. The economy and real economic output, that's growing right now, which means that the money supply needs to grow as well to match it, which the Fed is doing, but they're growing it way faster. They're growing at 7 or 8% faster than the amount of real stuff is growing. If the Fed can do a better job at that matching game and they have the expertise and the know-how to do it, then we'll have inflation back to a regular level. We'll still have price changes because of supply and demand changes, uh, but overall prices will be much more stable across the entire economy if the Fed can get better at playing that monetary matching game. Well, how do they do that? That sounds like that's a rather complicated thing to me. Um, trying to balance your your the what the factors that you put in there. Are they able to do that? They are. I mean, that's what they should be able to do. Yes. In fact, uh, the reason the Fed has been making so much money is because of the COVID economic shock. Um, economic activity went down, so the Fed decided if there are more dollars in the economy, people would be more inclined to spend. So what they did was they bought up a bunch of government bonds, and they paid for that with money that they freshly created. And that freshly created money eventually circulated throughout all the economy, and that's what's causing today's inflation. So essentially, we're paying for a mistake the Fed made about two years ago. There's there's a time lag with these things, and we're seeing that now. And the Fed is already starting to take the right steps, but if they, what they're doing will probably take a year or more to take effect. So they're starting to do the right thing, which is why I have that cautious optimism. But we may not be through the worst of it yet, and inflation is going to be here even in the best-case scenario for a little while to come. Well, I don't like hearing that. I don't like the price of gas, the price of beef, and everything else. But you say that those factors are different from what we're talking about. And I think in the consumer's mind, it's pretty hard to separate them, to be quite honest with you. But I, I do understand what you're saying, that there's a, the supply and the issuance of money and how much we have and how bad basing it with the a production of goods. That makes makes sense to me. I just, you know, it's a little bit hard to wrap my head around in terms of when I go into the meat market and look at all the prices of beef. Whoa. So anyway, um, let okay, let's let's put this in the ter good terms today. You're saying that we're not going to see a relief from this anytime soon. It's going to be a while before it happens. But they are taking some steps. Are they taking baby steps, or do you think that they really? really seriously have got their arms around what's going on and are going to do the things that need to be done in a fairly fa a quick fashion. They've already taken baby steps and I think they should do more. I think they will do more going forward, but at the same time, there's some hesitancy on the, on the Fed's part. If they're too aggressive about tapering back the money supply and getting it back in line uh, with goods and services, uh, they worry that it might cause a recession because that's exactly what happened the last time this happened in the oh. late 70s and early 1980s. There was inflation even higher than it is today. And when the Fed finally started acting on it and doing the right thing and getting better at playing that monetary matching game, it caused a recession. Because when you take money out of the economy, sometimes people respond by buying less and producing less. So that is a real risk. The Fed, in addition to needing to be better at a matching game, also has to strike a balance between fighting inflation and preventing a recession. That can be difficult to do, and they're a little timid about it, and I can understand why. Well, uh, some things are coming back to smack them in the face right now anyway, so I guess that you know, taking action can be, can be a little bit intimidating. Nevertheless, you're giving us a, a, an insight into why you have a little bit of optimism going forward and i'm hoping that that's going to pay off let's just uh, take a brief pause here to let our listeners know that they're tuned into of consuming interest <laughs> 
My guest is Ryan Young. He's a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And we're talking about inflation in, in two senses. One, which is part of the, uh, which is not part of the supply shock. Um, which you're, we're going to talk about now because you've talked about how monetary prices in fact affect inflation. You're saying that the supply shock that we're suffering in terms of energy and food is not really inflation. You know, and I'm sitting here saying, is this man crazy? I mean, <laughs> I will tell you, I'm saying that's inflation to me. But I understand what you're coming. You're looking at this from an economic standpoint, and I'm looking at it from a consumer standpoint. So let's go back and talk about the shock to the system that we've gone through in terms of why we're seeing, for example, beef prices raise sky high prices. It's incredible what's going on. I mean, when I see the, the cost of, of meat today and, and some parts of the meat pop, uh, uh, production is more expensive than others. So put it into perspective for consumers. What's happening here? Sure. Um I've been saying all along things like the food and energy prices are, well, for the most part, not inflation. That doesn't mean that I'm saying that it's not happening. I'm not saying that we should do nothing. What I'm right. saying is there are multiple issues in play here. So separate issues need to be treated with separate tools. Um, so to your beef example, um, food prices are notoriously volatile because supply and demand shifts. And um, in addition, far off factors can even influence those prices like Russia's invasion of Ukraine right now. Um, one of our policy responses to the energy disruption that's causing is to create more biofuels, more ethanol. That uses corn that would otherwise go to feeding cattle and livestock. Um, when you take away that food source, the price is gonna go up and that's gonna show up down the line at the grocery store. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty complicated, pretty interconnected issue. It's completely separate from the monetary issues under inflation, but even so, we still feel it in the pocket just the same. This is, this the, is a more consumer, complicated issue than a lot of people think. Oh, it is complicated. The consumer price index, however, reflects both what's happening because of the money supply as well as what you would call these shocks to the system. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And that's why the Fed actually stopped using CPI. It's very difficult to tease out what prices are due to monetary inflation and what price increases are due to things like supply disruptions. And the CPI is not up to the task. So the Fed stopped using it about 15 or 20 years ago. They used something else instead. Um, so it's it's difficult. It's it, Even professionals have trouble with it. Yeah, it is, it is difficult. But we know we're suffering in the pocketbook right now, all of us. So it, we can we can feel that. Okay, let, so let's continue with a little bit of talk about the uh, the price of beef. So we saw ethanol has been, is ethanol being increased? I was reading somewhere not too often long ago that the amount of ethanol and gasoline was going to be increased. I think I, I heard that, or is that is that something in the planning right now? That's correct. Um, over the course of the year, uh, as the seasons change, so does the type of gas that is that goes into our cars. Uh, that's, that's set by the, the uh, energy department. So the administration announced a change that this summer, when usually the blend that we find at the pump contains less ethanol, because ethanol tends to give poor mileage and tends to be more polluting than oil, um, they're gonna actually go back to using more instead of less, because oil being really expensive right now, the less of that we can use, the better. So ethanol is a little bit cheaper, so if we can put a little bit more of that into our cars, that should help with gas prices a little bit. 
I think in terms of impact, we're talking maybe a couple of pennies. So small potatoes, but it's enough to impact food prices because all the extra corn production that's going to divert from from right exactly. Well, I remember the when ethanol was first added to gas tanks and the concern about the cost of bread, for example, and the amount of bread that we were amount of wheat that we were able to export and a number of the things that impacted uh, that that you really often don't think about. Oh well, we're going to increase the ethanol. You know, think about the ripple effect, I guess, is one way to call it. It kind of sends waves all over the place, and we're seeing that here. Well, um, now, since gasoline is, let's go back to this big, what I consider one of the big uh, problems that we're having right now, and that is the energy supply. And we have seen uh, prices, I I don't know, what have they gone up? More than 50%, I think, in in just the last few years. how do we first off what caused it the main culprit is putin's invasion of ukraine um just even leaving aside the geopolitical concerns which we shouldn't um that is causing a major disruption to oil supplies here in the u.s there are things we can do about that which i'm happy to talk about but as far as what the cause is right now that's the big one okay but now our gasoline prices were increasing before he invaded the Ukraine. And I can understand how that might have an impact, but certainly the price increase before he invaded Ukraine, which is what, been three and a half, four months ago? Um, aren't Haven't we seen, didn't we see a significant increase prior to that? We did. And part of that is because when COVID hit, gas prices immediately plunged down to as low as they'd been probably since I was a teenager in the 90s. <laughs> I'm never going to see that again because people stayed home. They weren't driving. Demand went down. That wasn't inflation or deflation. There was a change in demand. As people were able to open up from COVID as the pandemic passed, prices went up almost in lockstep with how much people were able to open back up. So that's why prices were increasing as COVID led up. And then on top of that increase from a low starting point, which is why it looks so bad, then you have the Ukraine invasion, which puts further upward pressure on prices. So you're right. There are there is more in play than than just Putin. Now the, the, there are responses to that that we can pursue. The the impact of the invasion of the Ukraine was, I'm sure, much more felt in Europe than it was here because of their supply of of uh, uh, fuel energy that comes from Russia. Is that part of the formula, part of what's happened? It is, but here in the US, um, we have a law called the Jones Act from 1920. It's still on the books a century later. It's basically a Buy American law for ocean shipping. And the effect of that is that the US, US made boats cost four to five times as much as boats made in the open market. And when you have restrictions about uh, foreign ships being able to access U.S. ports, it turns out that because of that law, it's actually cheaper for refineries on the East Coast in places like New Jersey to import oil from places as far away as Russia, which actually does account for about 3% of our oil imports. It's cheaper for them to do that than to import it from New Orleans or Houston. It's it's a crazy law, law. This law has been on the books since when? 1920. You know, I think maybe it, we should age it out. <laughs> is, there I, I any, is there any move to to do that? There's some. Uh, I mean, economists have been against it. 
probably since World War II, but uh, we've been lonely on that. The good news is that in the just released President's Economic Report that comes out every year, they very obliquely mentioned that maybe certain ocean shipping policies that shall not be named, but it's clear what they're referring to, should be phased out. The trouble is that uh, the domestic shipping industry is very, very aggressive about lobbying for it to the point where they will regularly show up to congressmen's fundraisers from landlocked states like Nebraska. Every issue, just be with us on this one thing. And they're very good at that. So that's, yeah, that's let's a take a, cool. uh, take a brief pause here to let our listeners know they're tuned into up consuming interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. You're listening to up consuming interest. My guest is Ryan Young. He's a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And we're talking about us being slammed at the gas pumps, at the food counter, and all of the other things that are going on in our world that's making living a whole lot more expensive. Okay, so we look at the the, the Ukraine, the impact there, the laws that are, are making it cheaper to purchase foreign oil, what what impact did the the fact that we shut down some supply lines and we put a freeze on on uh, drilling on some federal lands? How much is that? Just a small impact on what we're seeing now? No, I would say it's also a major factor. Um, in the long run, it's going to be more important than what's happening in Ukraine. In the short run, because nobody saw that disruption coming, that's what's causing the huge spike. As people adapt to it, that'll become less pronounced. And the longer run concerns like federal policy for drilling, um, you know, issuing permits and then yanking them back like Lucy does with Charlie Brown's football. Um, that kind of stuff is in the long run harmful to energy production. Um, and if we want to keep prices in check, have more price stability, those are the kinds of policies we need to open up and liberalize. Uh, absent that, we're going to be much more vulnerable to supply shocks. And even though that's Again, a separate issue from inflation, that's still something that you and I will be feeling in our pocketbooks until we make those reforms. Well, I, I, I'm hoping that your bright light there is going to get bigger and bigger as we progress. So anyway, if you were to give a checklist for consumers, what would you tell them to do? Well, first off, I don't know how we're going to avoid the prices. So we maybe drive less. But um what what do you see? Do you see in terms? Well, let's talk about the supply of, of of beef or meat in general and beef in particular. Um, how do you see the problems being solved here? Since ethanol, there's going to be more ethanol requirements for gasoline. What's um, going to create a further, I would say, impact certainly on the beef industry. Well, actually, all uh, meat production. Yeah. Well, one thing we can do not just with beef, but with goods writ large, is we can get rid of the tariffs affecting hundreds of billions of dollars worth of goods at rates as high as 25% that have been enacted over the last five years. Those tariffs have cost families, on average, between $1,200 and $2,000 per year. And that oh is a cost going forward. If we reduce those tariffs just back to where they were five years ago, that'll save the average family, again, between $1,200 and $2,000 per year. Um, that's that's not nothing. Well, these, you know, tariffs are, are something that I know we use to, I guess, punish our enemies and to make them realize that, hey, we got some power and all other particular reasons. Are there some positive reasons for tariffs? 
Not really. I've been looking hard for reasons. Um, but And you're an optimist, so how could you not find it? Well, in this, if you look at the China tariffs, which are the biggest ones, um, we had a specific goal with those. We wanted China to be much more of a fair actor on trade. We wanted them to make certain reforms, respect companies' property rights, um, all objectives that I think everyone can agree with, regardless of political persuasion. So we enacted those tariffs with that goal in mind. China did not enact any reforms. What they did was they retaliated with tariffs of their own. So we tried it again, and the same thing happened. This happened for four rounds, uh, plus the phase one trade agreements, and China ended up not making a single substantive reform, despite hundreds of billions of dollars of goods uh, with tariffs as high as 25%. Uh, so what we do when something doesn't work is we stop doing it. Uh, that is the optimistic case. If we get rid of that, then better things will happen. There are better ways to convince Beijing to liberalize. Most of them are long-term and more cultural uh, than policy-oriented, which is a tough sell. But at, I think in the long run, I mean, it was blue jeans and rock and roll that won the Cold War. It's today's equivalent that will help China to become a free country someday. Yes. Well, that would be a, a very worthwhile goal. But... But Americans, so we continue paying higher prices because of tariffs, and China hasn't learned a lesson. Are there other countries that tariffs have played a significant impact on our economy? Yes. Um, the, the biggest ones aside from China are tariffs on steel and aluminum. Um, we initially imposed those against allies. Canada, not a national security threat. Mexico, Europe. Um, those tariffs were explicitly enacted on national security grounds, despite those countries who are allies that we need against places like China and Russia. Um, and instead of buying us more national security, which might be a worthwhile trade-off, instead they alienate allies who we need for other foreign policy concerns. And meantime, based on the rate of the steel tariffs, they add 250 to $300 to the price of an average car. Um, they make housing more expensive at a time when prices are already pushing record levels. So if we just get rid of those policies, it won't affect inflation, but it will still make people better off, not just now, but in the long run as well. Brian, uh, uh, eliminating or the tariffs, I know we put them in there to punish and to try to teach lessons. Do we also put it in as protection for our industries? Yes, uh, that is one of the goals, and it turns out that tariffs tend to fall short in that regard as well. Uh, the steel tariffs, suppose you accept the argument that they help the steel industry, but they also hurt many, many more workers. Instead of, you know, the price of helping a few thousand workers comes at the direct expense of hundreds of thousands of other workers in steel using industries like yeah. automobiles and construction and electronics and who knows what else, anything that steel goes into, um, all those using industries downstream get hurt. So it's not like people are getting made better off without any harm. People are being made better off. A small group is being made better off at everyone else's expense. And everybody else pays for it. Uh, that's a rather bleak note to end our discussion, Ryan, but I've certainly enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm hoping that you are, are giving us a sight into something that's going to happen and that we will see a lessening of inflation, even though it may take a while to roll it back. Um, in the meantime, I don't know what we're going to do. Walk, I guess, uh, the price <laughs> of gasoline. Brian, thank you so much for being with us. We've thoroughly enjoyed it. 
We've had Ryan Young, a senior fellow from the Competitive Enterprise Institute, as our guest today. Today, we thank you very, very much. You've been listening to Up Consuming Interest right here on the Federal News Network. I'm Shirley Rooker. You can reach me at Shirley at callforaction.org. That's Shirley at callforaction.org. Thank you for joining us. Of Consuming Interest is a public service program presented by WJLA 7 Call for Action, hosted by Shirley Rooker. Call for Action is an international nonprofit network of hotlines which offer free and confidential assistance. If you have a complaint, contact Call for Action at 301-652-HELP. That's 301-652-HELP. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.